Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Bernie Marsden and Do It If You Wanna from his new Big Boy Blues and Green box set. And yes, I've got Bernie Marsden on the Strange Brew today to cover highlights from his fantastic career. What a fabulous songwriter and guitarist he is. We cover highlights from his own work, White Snake, Cozy Powell, Pace, Ashton Lord and much more. So here's my chat with bernie hello thank you very much for doing this bernie it's uh, much all right, appreciated it's okay i'm ready to go fantastic so one of the things i wanted to talk to you about is the new box set that's coming out on the uh, cherry red family yeah big boy blues and green a decade of your music around the mid 90s to the the mid 2000s and very much that blues theme there well, everything I've done really has always been based in you know blues stuff from when i was a kid really and you, you know once that's in you it's like permanent. You don't get rid of it. And all my stuff, all through the bands I've been in, has been pretty much not blues-based, but that that kind of feel, you know. And uh, I was never, ever a pop-type person. And uh, I got lucky, I suppose, later on in the career and uh, wrote some pretty good stuff, which isn't blues. But uh, the blues will always be close to my heart. And uh, that period of time, I was playing a lot live and had some really good lineups and done some great festivals. and 
I was going in and out of the studio and, and just putting down stuff all the time. And, and is it really a 10 year? Yeah, so is it must be probably more than 10 years, actually. Yeah. But I never thought about it like that. And in your excellent autobiography, Where's My Guitar?, you talked about the influence, as many of your peers had, of British bands like the Beatles and the Hollies. Yeah. But then the blues came, and I understand that really started to sort of hook you in. Well, I was lucky. I I, I had a, a friend who turned me on to people like Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf not long after I'd heard the Beatles and the Hollies. Well, whereas everybody was listening to all the uh, British bands and being influenced by them, I was then thought, oh, yeah, I'm not so keen on this. And then I found out that those very people were listening, listening to Chuck Berry and they were listening to Howling Wolf as well. So I thought, well, I can go for the real thing here. So instead of getting stuck into my Beatles albums, which I did, yeah. but not to the point where they influenced me so much, I thought, well, I'll listen to Howling Wolf. And that was when I started to play the guitar in earnest. And in relation to playing the guitar, there's a, a passage in your autobiography where you talk about the moment that you found you could reproduce some of Sonny Boy Williamson's harmonica parts on the guitar, and you've also got your version of Do It If You Want to on that set too. Yeah, that's right. But I found that uh, Sonny Boy was very accessible because he, even though he was a featured harmonica player, he always had some good guitar players on there playing good stuff in the background. And while I was playing along with those records and I was about 16 or 17, I so realized I was playing his parts as well. So that's, uh, but that's basically, a, you know, that's a blues-based thing. You can do that. You can you can imitate, and that's why the harmonica works so well, you know, as a, as a blues instrument. And as the 60s progressed, there was a range of bands that came onto the scene that were part of what is now known as the sort of British blues boom, and Fleetwood Mac, the original version, were at the vanguard of that. And on the first CD of this set, which was your album Green and Blues, yeah. you uh, pay tribute to much of that. Well, Fleetwood Mac were my boys. There were some good, really good bands around, you know, Chicken Shack and Savoy Brown. Lot, lots of good bands, but Fleetwood Mac, you know, I mean, I, I'd been listening to Peter Green with John Mayer anyway, and there was no contest really. I used to travel as far as I could in those days to go and see them play live. And I saw them live many times. I wish I'm very, when I look back on it now, I'm very fortunate. Great versions as well. You've got things like Love That Burns, Man of the World. Yeah. How was it trying to capture Peter's sound? Well, I think once you get that thing in your head with Peter Green, nobody could play like Peter Green. I think B.B. King said that. And if he says it, well, I'm going to take note. Hmm. But uh, it was just his feel, his feel that he had and getting that kind of sound and trying to be less is more kind of thing. And your story is weaved with links and linkages with, with Fleetwood Mac. Everything from the time you you took your demo tape to Mike Vernon of Blue Horizon. and Yeah, I mean, I tried. You know, I tried so much. I thought, well, if other people can do it, maybe I can get my band involved. But Mike Vernon was very, very nice. Uh, he saw me as a solo artist rather than the band. And uh, at the time, you know, I was about 17 and the band was pretty hot and we were very very good mates I, I thought no i want to stay with a band you know and uh in the, he saw me as a singer first off funnily enough oh yeah oh. yeah i've seen mike since many times and uh it's like oh what could have been you know, we'll never know we'll never know but uh it was a nice time to be it was it was a good time to go to somewhere like blue horizon and not get kind of like just thrown you know thrown out the door they really listened. And Mike came to actually came to a gig to see me play, Oh, which I was very impressed by. 
you've got stories where you were bumping into Peter Green and then after Peter Green left the group around 1970, one of your early groups, Skinny Cat, actually opened for Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, we did. We opened for Fleetwood Mac in Oxford um, uh, with Danny Kerwin and Jeremy and uh, I think Christine was there as well. I'm pretty sure she must have been, but uh, I was most interested in the guitar players, of course, you know, but uh, I'm pretty sure Christine was there. And they were really good. They were really good. It's, it's a gig that doesn't appear in their uh, official biography, funnily enough. But uh, oh. I know it was there because my mates were playing with me. You said you love me now Will you love me tomorrow Cry. 
on the set as well, there's tracks like Place in My Heart, which I think is a song that you wrote, but has got a similar feel to that early Mac sound. I think so. I think that's that's my kind of, you know, writing tribute to that period. Uh, Joe Bonamassa recorded that song. Ah. And I've just done a new version of it uh, with, with Elkie Brooks. Oh, even better. Yeah. So uh, we wait to see what happens with that. Good song. There's great alternative takes on that set as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I must have felt very strong about it. I wouldn't have done all that different versions, you know, but uh, I always felt it should be sung by somebody else for some strange reason. But, uh, you know, even though I wouldn't say it was dedicated to Peter, but uh, it's dedicated to that period, that's for sure. And you worked with lots of great musicians in that period in your band, Andy Pyle, Geraint Watkins, for example, yeah. Henry Spinetti. Yeah. As I said before, we, I had some great lineups, and the lineup that ended up recording was probably the best one, which is the way it should be, really. Henry and Andy together, sensational. Yeah. And, and I had Graham Walker as well. Just so lost I just don't know 
The next step as well was to play some of that material and you've got um, the live set that you recorded at the Granary in uh, 2003, but it also covers some soul, like Holden and Coving, so you've got a broader range. Yeah, it was more or less a a celebration of the music I grew up with, really. There's a great quote in the liner notes of the set as well, the compliment that B.B. King, you're one of the white men that can play the blues. Yeah, he he was very gracious and... uh... I only found that out uh, probably about, I don't know, best part of 10 years after he said it because uh, the guy who interviewed him sent me a transcript of the radio show. And um, yeah. I was absolutely, you know, knocked out by it. I didn't know. I, I did get a chance to thank him, though, that, so that was nice. And going back to some of the fantastic stories in Where's My Guitar, yeah, you've got great recollections of working with Cozy Powell. And it seemed that working in Cozy Powell's Hammer with hit singles like Na Na Na, were the moment where things really started to click for your career? I think so. I mean, working with Cozy was a turnaround for me because I'd been working with some good people before and learning my craft, really. But Cozy in the studio and Cozy as an artist was, you know, he was a, a le- kind of a level up and he knew what he wanted to do and he had he had no issue, issues with going in the studio. And all the time before that, when I went into a recording studio, I was kind of in awe. And Cozy would say, just a room get on with it you know and uh it, it changed my attitude really and you were working with mickey most quite a bit in that period and- yeah I, mickey was a tour de force to work with he just basically took me on board as with it was me and chris spedding really were, were his house guitar players for i don't know about 18 months something like that about a year 18 months you know and i did loads of sessions for him then which was always great because it was always extra money at the time and uh, he treated me really well he was a really good bloke he was a difficult man, you know, I think business-wise, but I, I never had that side of it because, you know, he hired me to play the guitar and, uh, and he, he obviously thought I was pretty good. <laughs> Clearly, and people won't know about those hot chocolate hits that you played. No, no, no. I didn't know about them for a long time. It was the bass player in Hot Chocolate who reminded me. Yeah. I'd forgotten about doing it, you know, because I, well, with Mickey, you used to work with backing tracks, not finished songs. Yeah. So he would say, oh, this one's in G or this one's in A and, you know, whatever. And I go, okay, you know, what do you want me to do? He said, you're pretty good with that wah-wah thing. Get stuck in, that kind of thing. And Mickey Most seemed to have a very clear idea of what he wanted and and the sound because 
it seems that he was influential in basically not continuing yeah, to work well, he with was, you and Cozy Powell. He was the influence in making Cozy Powell and, in fact, in breaking Cozy Powell. Wow. Because we put the band together. We were ready to go and do an album. And he basically came in the studio and said, look, uh, you blokes know what you're doing. You know, you know too much about recording. I can't, I can't really go in the studio with you. And it was all very amicable, but it was a bit devastating at the time mm. because we were ready to record and it broke the band up. then played with Babe Ruth, but then moved on to Pace Ashton Lord and 
Pace Ashton Lord was another step up in your musical journey. Yeah, that was like that was working with three cozy pals. <laughs> you know, it was like John and Ian were so experienced and then they had the, this fantastic success with Deep Purple. Ashton was just a different Ashton was a one off. He was a comedian, you know, jazzer really. And uh, but he was so funny, and I've, I, you've read the book. You can tell how much I loved him, you know. Yeah. But uh, working with him was a was a delight. Every day, you just didn't, never know what was going to happen. Usually, you were down the pub. <laughs> a shift in sound from Deep Purple, much more broader range of, of sounds in Pace Ashton Lord. So quite um, ambitious in terms of playing with them. Well, it was years before its time, really, and uh, the Arch Purple fans took it on board, but that was about it. The rest of the uh, the fan club was, oh, no, no, this is, this is not, you know, not heavy metal. This is not rock. What are they doing, basically? And they voted with their feet, basically, because uh, the album sold very little, and uh, we, we we had to cancel more gigs than uh, than we did. But it was a great experience, and. Uh, Recording those albums is one of the highlights of my career. I assume it was quite a collaborative process because your your name is in on the credits for writing quite a few of yeah. those tracks, including "Remember the Good Times." I was pretty much involved in most of it, to be honest with you. And uh, you know, we came up with a bit of a deal where PAL would have, would appear on some tracks, but I was involved in the tunes. We came up with a deal. A great story about you meeting Roger Moore at the time. <laughs> yeah, that was something else. I was excuse me, mate, I can't get in. He turned around, it was him. <laughs> so now he was most interested in the back line and everything and the guitars and stuff and so i took him in he, he had all his gear on as well it, you know he was dressed as james bond it was really funny and uh i was showing him around the back line and he was looking at the drum kit and stuff he's a really nice guy genuinely interested and then i was lucky enough he said well you've showed me around he said why don't you come on the set one day and that was fantastic i was his guest on the set so that was really nice
And it was in the Pace Ashton Lord period that you first met David Coverdale. Yeah, we were recording the second album in Munich, and uh, he lived about an hour from Munich at the time. And I think he just basically came down to see John and Ian, you know, and say hello. And uh, that's when we met, and we got on really well. We had the same influences. We were the, we were single children. We never had any brothers or sisters, and we bonded quite well very early. It was your idea to do a, a remake of Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City then? Well, I, I'd always loved the song, and I, I knew that David would sing it fantastically. So it was me who took it into the studio that first session, yeah. yeah. And a different version to the Bobby Bland original. Yeah, we. I, I didn't want to do a straight copy of it, and David heard it as a blues. So we slowed it down and uh, come up with a couple of different ideas, and we put that opening riff onto it that was that was mickey moody did that and uh it was a, just an opening riff and it stuck and the people loved it from day one
And it was your idea or, or the idea of writing for B.B. King that sparked off the idea for Fool for Your Loving? Fool for Your Loving was written for B.B. King. Yeah, it was. I've heard a few interviews where David says, I wrote Fool for Your Loving for B.B. King. <laughs> well, uh, that's not correct. We, uh, the word we should be used a little bit more often. Uh, but it was the idea that once we got into it, we said, this this would be great. B.B. had done an album called Midnight Believer at the time. Mm. It was kind of funky. And we, there, it was a different version. I do have a version of what Whitesnake would have done in the can, actually, which I've never put out, with uh, with Grant Watkins playing uh, keyboards on, funnily enough. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's in the can somewhere. It's a good version. It's a good version. And that's a song that really took off live and became a bit of a live anthem? Yeah, absolutely. That broke us in this country and uh, pretty much in Europe as well. And there's always to this day is really really popular. It's not the biggest White Snake song, of course, of course, but uh, it's one of the big ones. Here's a song for you. Here's a song you put in the top twenty for. Let me hear you sing.
And it was management and contractual issues that kind of contributed to... Um... Well, not not kind of, totally. Right. We were poorly managed, uh, Jason, and uh, we got to a point where it was like, you know, what's going on? You know, is there any point in carrying this on? We're not doing any... We're not making any money, basically. And uh, the band just, unfortunately, was uh, allowed to break up. We didn't break up with a row or a fight or anything like that. I wish we had, in a way. It would have been more dramatic. But... Uh, we just drifted apart, really, and, and if you know that was how it was to be, or that was that was it. That was how it happened. It's a shame, though. Such potential because that end period when you were in the original White Snake, you've got things like Here I Go Again, which showed yeah. the potential of what the band would could have become. Yeah, I, I believe that the potential was completely uh, taken away from us because. Uh, we would have broken through. We would have done another record. I don't think it would have been the Slide It I mean, I was gone. Slide It In, for me, is a very disappointing record. And uh, I think until they did the 87 album as a Whitesnake album, there wasn't much going on, really. I don't know. I look back at it now. There's two different Whitesnakes. You know, it's like the Fleetwood Mac thing. There's the Fleetwood Mac with Peter. Yeah. And there's the Fleetwood Mac with Lindsay and uh, and Stevie Nicks. But equally, equally, equally in their parts, but as important as each other, but very, very different. You've remade Here I Go Again, or certainly a live version, and that's on the set too, which is quite radically different. With the girl singing it. Yeah, Sharon. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very, it's very emotional, really. It's very poignant. And uh, she sings it beautifully, and it's, well, it's, people just want to sing the song. Yeah. She, she kept on to me for ages, can we do Here I Go Again? And I said, no. You know, <laughs> how? She said, well, let's just do it quietly with me singing. And I thought, oh, okay. And then we, it went down so well on stage that when we did the live album, I just kept it in. This is kind of close to my heart, I suppose. Alone. 
in that end period of Whitesnake you were releasing your own material and like looking at me now yeah I guess I was encouraged by David to be honest with you David was a very very big force behind me making a solo album because I was writing a lot of stuff that I said what about this for the band and he'd go oh I'm not sure that's good for the band it's a bit poppy he said because you write like that you know and why don't you do a solo album so uh, he was very good and he pushed me a lot to do it and I'm glad I did now I'm very proud of those two solo albums. You were working with such great musicians yeah. for those solo albums as well. Yeah. I mean, I had a great black book in those days. Well, I still do, actually. <laughs> <laughs>
one of your re- more recent album, Kings. There's some great material there. Yeah. Like Help the Poor there. Yeah. You didn't pick something obvious in, in that song. You actually picked a, a bit more of an obscure B.B. King track. Well, I wanted to do something like, you know, that was like going back in time to pick the songs I, you know, I, I created a career from, really. But Help the Poor was one I always liked. It was never one that he played live very much. And I just thought it was a great vibe. And uh, I sang, you know, nobody can sing like me. Nobody can play like him or sing like him. You do your best. Help the poor. Won't you help poor me? Almost a decade ago, David Coverdale featured on the, the song Trouble from your solo album Shine. Yeah. Was that almost a moment of rounding things off in a bit more of a complete way? Yeah, to a certain extent. I rang him up and just said, you know, I'm doing trouble. Do you want to, I'd like you to sing it. And I thought he might say, oh, I don't know. You better speak to my managers. And he said straight away, of course, send it over. 
and uh, he did it great. He was did, did a great sang it in the same key, and uh, he's been very supportive. He was very very keen, you know. And then once I and when I told other people what David Coverdale singing on the album, you know, asking other people to get involved was easy. Yeah, because I think you recorded some of that with a group at Abbey Road, didn't you? I did the whole album at Abbey Road. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was really good. And uh, Joe, Joe came down. Joe Bonamassa came down and played on it. And uh, I had the great, the, the late uh, Jimmy Copley playing drums, who was just incredible. It's about, yeah, it's about nearly 10 years ago now since so that project started, really. And uh, I'm very proud of it. It was a good comeback album for me. It put me back in the, back in the pack, really. And uh, the record company did a good job on it, the guys in, in Holland. And uh, it kind of put me back out there again. And uh, I never, I've never stopped since. And that links neatly, other than to refer to the the new box set. Yeah. What's the future for you? Because you're releasing some uh, great solo albums at the minute. Have you got plans to record, play live? Got a studio album in the can that's coming out, I think, in June or July, and it's very different. Brilliant. I don't know what to say about it really because I'm, I'm leaving it for other people to make their minds up. I've got everything out of my system now. What with kings and trios. And the chess album, yeah. and the shine album. I've done the rock, the rock thing. I've done. I've got into very much into uh, not got into it, but I, I'm concentrating more on songwriting, and I think it shows up a lot on this. Uh, the album's going to be called Working Man, and I'm not I'm not doing much live at the moment. I've not been in the best of health the last six months, and uh, so I'm not sure you know what the live situation is going to be. I'm, I'm recovering okay now, as you can probably hear, but. Uh, yeah. Live isn't on the, on the map at the moment, but the album will be out in July, and I think it's going to surprise a lot of people. Well, that's fantastic, and as you say, yeah, you've covered so many bases. It's time for something um, new to add to your repertoire. Well, I'm, you know, seventy one years old now, and I, I don't want to be singing about uh, "Come over here, baby, and I love you." You know, <laughs> let's spend the night together. You know, I know where I'm at. You know, I think Robert Plant has got that down to a T. Yeah, the great Jeff Beck. Yeah, he continually reinvented himself, and uh, it's taken me much too long to have that attitude. I think.
fantastic. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been great listening to this uh, superb set. Yeah, it's, it's a good set. I, I'm very pleased with it. I'm glad Sherry Redder put it out. I'm, it's, 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 a good, it's a good idea. I wouldn't have thought of doing it, so I'm glad. Especially if people get to hear the Peter Green stuff and yeah. people go back to Fleet. People say, well, I, I didn't know that was Fleetwood Mac. Well, it was. Without him, there would be no Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> yeah, well, a final point. It got overshadowed by the, the excellent Gary Moore album in that period, but I think you recorded your album before Gary. I did. I mean, it got overshadowed by, by Gary's because Gary was a, was a, was a star. And he was a mate. He was a mate of mine. And I, in fact, I delayed the release of it because I knew that uh, Blues for Greeny was coming out, and it would have looked like I was just jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah. But I recorded mine before he recorded his, and uh, and used his guys. I think that miffed him a bit. <laughs> <laughs> but we were good mates. We were close. You know, like I got close to Peter at the end as well. Yeah. So when I look at it now, it's strange how. There are two White Snakes and the very biggest band that I ever loved. There was two of them as well. Yeah. So we run in parallel in a way. Yeah. And I, I got really close to Peter at the at the end of his life. So that's a joy to me. That must have been uh, so amazing to spend some time with him, and especially in those latter years. Well, to drive to his house and him ha- having him open his front door and I say, how are you, Peter? And he would say, all the better for seeing you. Ah. You know, that made me feel so good. Well, it doesn't get any better than that. Thank you so much again, Bernie. Um, Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, man. All right, mate. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I don't want to 
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.